Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us in New York, we've got a great guest as well. Joining us from our studios, our interactive broker studios at Bloomberg, Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs Global Head of Commodities Research and Partner, joining us now. Jeff, good morning to you. Let's get to the news that just crossed the wires, shall we? Crossing the Bloomberg, that China's getting ready to cut import tariffs on some goods from November. Is this a white flag? What is this? Well, they were already experiencing inflationary pressures. And one thing we've argued about these tariffs is they're none likely to have that big of an impact on demand or supply chains, but have a much larger impact on inflationary pressures. So by cutting them, it's actually easing an inflationary environment, which was exacerbated by swine flu and other domestic problems. What's been fascinating about the commodity market through 2018 so far, if I said to you, Jeff, that we were going to have a big trade dispute between the United States and China, if I said we'd have big concerns over emerging markets and a stronger dollar story emerged through 2018 and then said, guess where commodities are, would you have guessed correctly? The one fly in the ointment there really is the dollar, which is what put downward pressure on the metals complex. When we look at energy, it's a very different story. Oil is where it would be with or without the dollar. I like to say that oil causes the dollar, the dollar causes non-energy. So the big difference here really is in the metal side that copper is sitting far lower than what we would have expected. Jeff Curry, good morning from uh, the Plaza Hotel. Uh, uh, Jeff, I'm fascinated by the supply dynamic into the next Vienna meeting. I understand there's a marginal issue with this given country, that given country, but what will be the supply elasticities that they confront in Vienna? Well, I think the big concern is does Saudi and the core OPEC have additional capacity to deal with the Iranian outage? Um, They're making large-scale investments right now. Rig counts in Saudi Arabia are up 20%. The neutral zone has 300,000 barrels per day of additional capacity. Russia has 200. So, yeah, right now it's a concerning issue. But as we look out forward six months and beyond, um, it becomes less of an issue. What is your target on Brent crude? Um, we are 75 at the end of this year. We think it'll hover in that um, low 80, oh. high, high 70 range. I think the key here is from an investment perspective, oil's backwardated. It has a 10% carry. Even though that we're not bullish on prices, we're bullish on owning oil because of that carry. Let's talk about that a little bit deeper. And if we can strip away the jargon, Jeff, when you say that oil is backwardated, what do you mean by that? And why is it significant? It means inventories are low. So spot prices sit above forward. So you buy forward at a discount and roll up that curve. Think about it as like the interest rate on a bond. Um, And in the current environment, that dividend or whatever you want to call it for oil is paying 10%. Fascinating. And the president pushing back against OPEC. Your thoughts on that, Jeff, because I'd love to hear what you think. The willingness, the president's questioning the willingness of OPEC to push back with uh, more supply to meet higher crude prices. Does the ability exist before we actually actually question the willingness, Jeff? Well, in terms of looking at the, the, the willingness, they pumped a lot of oil on this market back in August, and look what it did to Brent prices and Brent term structure. 
Um, they backed up, inventories came back down, and oil prices went right <clears> back up. So clearly, um, they do have, at least in the immediate term, enough of capacity to start to keep, you know, keep this market balance and push it slightly into a surplus. I like to emphasize, historically, they never pushed this market into a surplus voluntarily. They did a little bit in August and then backed off. The big question, you know, well, as Tom asked, is, you know, what's their capacity coming from here? The highest we've ever seen Saudi hit was 10.6. They're producing 10.5. Okay. But they're making investments. Uh, Jeff, you know, let me ask you the question. I'd, you know, you're one of the, the greats of petroleum economics and petroleum discourse in the world. When you hear the president lecture Saudi Arabia, how does a pro like you respond to that? I, I, I like to use the example of soybeans. What did we learn this summer? Um, that the administration is willing to use all the tools at his disposal to be able to keep prices of commodities um, in a manageable range. Um, it was that triple C, a you know obscure 1930 Depression era law that they were able to use to be able to subsidize farmers. I think what we learned from that is there's right. a willingness by this administration to do whatever it takes to keep prices in manageable. Okay, uh, that's prices. very nostalgic. I'm sitting in the Palm Court, John Farrell, where Conrad Hilton bailed out the hotel in about 1934. That's all great. Let's move forward to 2020. Can the president provide discourse on oil into 2020? or 2025 to keep the price down. I don't have an interview, Jeff Curry, that believes he can succeed at that. No. When you get into 2020, 2025, it starts to become an issue. But when you look at that, you got huge pipe capacity coming online in the Permian. You know, that's the pipe to get the oil out of the mid-continent U.S. down to the Gulf Coast um, coming online in September of this year. So your window of tightness yeah. really is between <clears throat> now and, right. let's say, third quarter of next year. John, John, per- Permian, you can translate as Texas. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you very analysis. much. I am just shocked by Tom's knowledge of the Plaza Hotel in New York. I, I'm guessing you frequent this bar quite often, Tom. This bar was redesigned about four or five years ago. And oh, they was have a it? redesigned <laughs> beverage of my choice. <laughs> uh, what did they redesign in terms of the beverage of your the choice? The price. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Curry of Goldman Sachs. I know we've got to let you go to get back to the, uh, the trading floors of Goldman downtown. So thank you very much for giving us your time this morning. Jeff Thanks, Curry, guys. Goldman Sachs Global Head of Commodities research and partner John Farrell from our studios Queen Victoria Street in London I'm Tom Keane at the Bloomberg Global Forum uh, here in the Palm Court of the famed Plaza Hotel for important conversation and thinking forward we begin our coverage with someone Important a day ago and ever more important right now, Werner Hoyer of Germany, president of the European Investment Bank, and we welcome him this morning. It's wonderful to speak to you, but my phrase, Mr. Hoyer, is I rip up the script, and I must rip up the script this morning. We saw the president speak yesterday at the United Nations, and I thought American media singled out the German uh, uh, party for the quality, the tone, the moments of laughter as the president spoke. Speak right now with your, your domestic politics experience of Germany about the German view of President Trump and of Chancellor Merkel's government's view of President Trump. What is a distinctive characteristic to you? Well, I think I'm not legitimized to talk about uh, President Trump well, I knew uh, from, that was from the a answer, German point of view. So from a German point of view. Yeah. Um, 
because I'm, I'm representing the European Union. From 30 years of experience in my own country, we are a little bit puzzled, you know. The United States of America has always been the big example for Germans. Right. Uh, the Americans were the ones who got out, out of the misery and our own crimes of World War II and the Holocaust. So we owe a lot to America, not only for that, but also for help to helping us to shape our constitution, our real political democratic life. So seeing America going in a completely different direction now from what they taught us decades ago, this is uh, irritating. But of course, the American people must make their own choices. Bloomberg spoke to Axel Weber this morning in Zurich, and it, it came up as well. Do you detect, and, and again, this goes to your abilities at the European Investment Bank, a pan-European view, do you detect that they look at President Trump in his sense of globalism as a one-off moment for America, or is there a new permanence here to America being less multilateral? Well, when I talk about America, I do not necessarily talk about President Trump. So I see that the president who is legitimized to take his positions and represent the United States takes these positions. However, I am very encouraged what I see on issues like globalization, on issues like uh, climate or so by American society, American industry, by many states, mm -hmm. the global covenant of mayors and all these developments which are very encouraging. So I don't give America lost. Let us turn to the European investment bank. Tell us about the state of investment, public and private, in Europe. Is there a forward momentum or is it going quarter to quarter? I'm, I'm very critical of that. I believe that uh, Europe is behind on investment. There is a huge gap in particular when it comes to innovation and when it comes to infrastructure. Both new infrastructure, roads, uh, communication, uh, energy transmission, ports, rail in particular, but also uh, when it comes to, to innovation. I think we, we invest much too little, both industry and the states, into the future of the, of the European Union. Werner, it's great to speak to you. It's Jonathan Farrow joining from the uh, City of London. Morning. On investment in Europe, it's actually quite fascinating that there is a reluctance from the Germans who run a very balanced budget to invest in their own country in infrastructure. That has been a case for a long, long time. How do we address those issues? How do we convince the German government that this is good for them and, and good for the continent as well? I think there is a, so far a lack of awareness how the bad situation of the infrastructure in Germany hurts the future of the country. I believe that a rebalancing of the budget is possible without getting or without losing sight of the objective of balanced budgets, which is which the Germans have achieved. That was a huge success, and which they want to maintain, which I perfectly understand. But I think it's doable by some reshifting in the budget and giving more attention to the quality and restoration and rehabilitation of infrastructure, just as well as to much more, much more in innovation, research, technology, and the whole thing begins with education. Do you think it's possible that in 10 years' time we could look back on Chancellor Merkel's leadership in Germany and actually view it as a squandered decade? Not at all. Uh, this lady has achieved so much for Germany, its reputation and its competitiveness in the world, that I think whatever happens to her in the next uh, many years, uh, she will re be remaining as one of the key leaders of Germany after World War II. If you're just joining us worldwide, Werner Hoyer with us. He is president of the European uh, Investment Bank here at the Bloomberg Global uh, Business Forum. Uh, and I'm thrilled that you're all with us coast to coast across America. Mr. Hoyer, when we look at it, you mentioned the, the lag in uh, infrastructure within uh, Europe. Most Americans would kill for Swiss trains or German trains or even the tube in London. I mean, it would be uh, the state of it. And part of that 
is the logistics and what Mr. Trichet has always told me is the challenges of crossing borders. Is it going to be a more connected Europe? I mean, 10 and 20 years on from these historic moments, will it be an interconnected Europe in air, in rail, and on road? We have already very much advanced there. Still improvements are possible, in particular in, in, in some parts of Europe, like Eastern Europe. Yes. We must invest more into Eastern Europe. This is, there is no question about that. But I'm, I'm less concerned that we might not make enough progress. I'm concerned we might go back. We might make go into a recess or a regress. Mm-hmm. Because what is happening presently, the, the, the longing for borders and border controls and everything that is very, very difficult and dangerous for logistics, this is coming back. And I'm really surprised that this came back and I'm really surprised that this is getting so much momentum. There's a history to all of this and if I could just take Germany and Italy as one example it's a new capitalism in Europe we hear interview to interview some people saying no we don't want to be Anglo-American others saying we need to nudge towards a more Anglo-American capitalism. Do you sense a new capitalism in continental Europe or is it steady as she goes? Well, I think as long as we remind ourselves that the social market economy was the recipe for progress, not only in in Germany, but uh, practically in many parts of Europe, and wherever this path was not uh, taken, uh, it didn't go so well. As long as we remember what we owe to the social market economy, the balancing between uh, the investments, the, uh, the, the social dimensions and and the, the private ownership, then we can still continue to make progress also in Europe. But in countries like Italy, they feel constrained and they feel constrained by rules that are set at the EU level, often by unelected officials. What do you say to the Italian government right now who are ultimately trying to bend the rules in some people's minds? The rules currently as they stand is to limit the budget deficit to 3% of GDP and ensure that your debt to GDP is moving in the right direction. Italy is trying to tear up the script. What's your message for them today? Well, we have a new situation in Italy that's legitimate to, to, to explore new fields, more boundaries and more new paths. On the other hand, uh, Italy and, and many other European countries were just about to implode because of the uh, oversized deficit. They have been very successful in reducing that considerably over the last couple of years, deviating from that path now, which was not uh, prescribed by unelected officials. That was a political decision at that time by elected po- politicians would be a big mistake. Werner, do you think that the budget deficits in Europe are perhaps overstated and that the actual problem was an impotent central bank that just refused to act like other central banks for a long, long time under Jean-Claude Trichet? Well, the European Central Bank has done a marvelous job uh, when going for the, the protection of the currency and the stability in Europe a couple of years ago with a very clear position to do whatever it takes. However, this is a position that cannot be maintained forever, as we can see in the United States. When it comes to monetary policy, the United States is always a couple of years ahead. So we're now in the process of seeing oh. that uh, that zero rate interest rates uh, will will disappear very soon, hopefully gradually and without any any damage to the companies that need to uh, to uh, to adjust to slowly rising interest rates. Werner Hoyer with us, president of the European Investment Bank here at the uh, Bloomberg Global Business Forum. Uh, is we have many important speeches today, but this is a wonderful focus on the dynamics of Europe. The, the word of the moment, uh, Werner, in every MBA program in America is scale, scale, scale. We're looking for scale, scale, scale. Europe has a complete disinterpretation or reinterpretation of that word from America. Are we going to see scale 
in corporate America's mergers, combinations and transactions? Are we going to go out and buy revenue instead of build revenue across Europe? That could be, and I think it would not be very helpful. I believe that uh, we have to make sure that whatever we de develop in the technological field and new and further develop will fit into a system that is, uh, that is in the, within the limits and constraints of competition law. And sometimes uh, right. I, I miss that. And we, we see the, the global di dimension in some, <coughs> some sectors where America is definitely leading. We um, admire that a lot. But this is, in, in the long run, not compatible with the rules of competition. I, I mean, uh, your, your dissertation years ago, theoretical approaches to the role of money as a capital property, this goes back to a huge theme in academics in America, which is monopoly businesses, but also this strange word, monopsony, which weakens labor. Europe has always of been course. far more sensitive to that than America. How will that change in the coming years? Or does labor maintain power in Europe? Or do they, does it fade away? I think it, 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 it maintains power because everybody, even among the employers, but in particular on the political side, are pretty much aware of the, of the uh, value of having stable social labor relations. And this has been achieved in Europe more or less over the last decades. Right. And I, I and think everybody is, is interested in preserving that. But otherwise, it might lead right. to disruptions, which can be very detrimental. And, and John Farrell, this was unique in 2008-9-10, where Germany adapted their labor force far better to financial meltdown than other countries, including the United States. And arguably, they started doing that a good 10 years before the financial crisis actually hit. The reality, Werner, as you know, is terrifically high unemployment in places like Spain, Italy, Greece. At the youth level, the picture is even more uglier. What's the solution to that? What's the remedy? What would you prescribe at the moment? I believe we should overcome the division of labor where innovation, modern technologies, further development of those takes place in the successful countries of the north. And in the south, we observe uh, second-rank uh, industries or something like that. We must bring innovation, new technologies. We must bring climate change activities mm. into the countries of the south, which are so far well. trailing. We must overcome the division between innovation and, uh, and development, innovation and climate, innovation and education. All this belongs together. We need a much more holistic view. And when it comes to Spain, you can see how successful right. they have been over the last couple of years. And if they pursue that course also in the future with a sense for a social balance, I'm th I think well. that Spain will be at par with Germany very soon. Werner Hoyer, thank you so much. He's president of the European Investment Bank here at the Bloomberg Global Business Forum. Welcome to our audience from uh, Bloomberg Television as well as Bloomberg Radio because we are joined by Michael R. Bloomberg, former mayor of the city of New York and of course the founder and majority shareholder of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News, we call him our boss. He's also the founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and is the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for Climate Action. That's a lot, be, Mike. It would be an outrage if you named everything after yourself. It really would be. <laughs> right, okay. Mr. Trump does that too. You should write a book and call it Bloomberg. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're here at the second annual yes. Global Business Forum. Mike. Uh, what's changed since the first in terms of global business? Is it better? Is it worse? Well, I would prefer that the world laughed with us than laughed at us. 
But um, yeah, things have changed. Uh, the tariff war is starting. Uh, hard to see how it doesn't uh, continue or even grow worse. Uh, didn't have, wasn't there a year ago. Uh, but I think the fundamental things of the public worrying about technology taking away their jobs, not understanding the environmental challenges we have, uh, those kinds of things were there a year ago. They were there two or three years ago. They influenced the last presidential election. They'll influence this midterm election. They'll influence the uh, 2020 election. Now, as you suggest, I mean, we had climate, we have technology, but really what has changed to some degree is trade. We saw that yesterday in the United yeah. Nations. A lot of talk about trade, a lot of restrictions, whether it's China, whether it's sanctions against Iran or whatever. Uh, how much are, is the United States hurting itself? There's a new report of the ECB that says actually the United States will hurt the most. Right. No, I think the United States will get hurt. you got to understand, China is so big that anything you do to China has a minimal impact on the country and only on a long-term basis. There are an awful lot of people in China that don't buy American products. There's 500 million people in China that still haven't come out of poverty, and they're not affected by any of this. Government social programs actually do better in down markets and down times because they don't get cut, whereas anything that you have in the private sector may go down in value, and your pension funds may be less because you have investments, and they don't have that. So I, I think it is fundamentally different. It is very much very worrisome. And regardless of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, this is just a failure of our government. And maybe we should look in the mirror. It's a failure of ourselves to not demand more from our elected officials. And yet, does the Trump administration have a point when it comes to China? China has been restrictive in trade. They have. Everybody agrees that China has done a lot of things that aren't fair. And administrations going back, both Republican and Democrat, have not done anything about it. It's not that Donald Trump is wrong in fighting it. It is the ways he's fighting it. Because, number one, it doesn't work. He puts people on the other side in a situation where they can't cave. They have their domestic and, and family to worry about. Um, and the second thing is uh, he's just going after the wrong things. There are, we need to have access to their markets. We need to be able to go over and open companies and compete. We don't need to stop them from selling us products. Quite the contrary. If they want to sell us products at a lower price than we can produce them ourselves, our consumers benefit from that. But we've got to make sure that our workers don't get hurt by that. And they don't get hurt if you create other jobs and other markets for us to sell our goods into. And so if you block one thing, they're going to block the other. And no matter which, where you work, you're going to get hurt. So how long can this go on, particularly the dispute with China, before permanent changes are made, whether it's companies changing their supply lines or whether it's, for that matter, China reaching out to Asia and other trading partners and there be permanent damage? Well, companies are very f flexible. They're already opening uh, plants and offices in other countries that are outside of the American-Chinese battle. Uh, they're already uh, readjusting their prices and how they manufacture the supply chains can change literally in the middle of the night they send a message to the ship go here rather than go there with the parts that you've got that we need them in a different plant um, it's much harder for us to change what you do when you annoy people when you antagonize people when you make enemies where it's hard to one day say they're bad and the next day say they're good 
given the problems that we face, the challenges, let me put it that way, we face, is it time for another business leader? I mean, we have one in the White House now, but I mean, you recently said that you were not going to decide about the presidency after the midterms. I assume that hasn't well, changed. Well, I don't think we have a business leader now. Donald Trump is a real estate promoter, and um, I, I don't know whether he's good or bad. He built a lot of real estate or owns a lot of real estate, a lot of golf courses. Um, but he's not a businessman in the sense that he has run a big organization, uh, how you work together, how you attract good people, how you adjudicate disagreements, um, how you deal with other companies, in this case, other governments. And it shows. And maybe Clinton and a little bit Bush, they had some management experience. But you've got to understand that all of these, the top jobs, these are executive jobs. They're not about policy. We keep asking them about policy, but policy is going to be set by advisors they bring in because nobody can be an expert on all of these things. The job is to manage, in Trump's case, four million people who work for the federal government. And that's not his expertise. Okay. Many thanks to Michael R. Bloomberg. Coincidentally, coming from the Bloomberg Global <laughs> Business Forum. Great to have you. David West in there alongside Michael Bloomberg as we kick off the Bloomberg Global Business Forum in New York. A speech with Prime Minister Theresa May coming up a little bit later. And Tom, the debate's still over trade. And as Mike points out, and I think most people agree, the problem is very much China and has been for a long, long time. And it's been a consequence of the utter failure of previous administrations to address the issue, I think the real debate still is the best line of attack to get the Chinese to do what's right and open up a whole lot quicker than they have been. Well, that seems to be the debate of the moment. As you say, it's been the debate for decades, but the immediacy of it and the tone is radically changed. John Farrow in London at our Queen Victoria Street studios next to Mansion House. And I am Tom Key, not at our world headquarters, but rather at the Plaza Hotel, the Bloomberg Global Business Forum. And it is a decidedly special Bloomberg surveillance this morning, not only because of the event and the people involved. Of course, Prime Minister May speaking later among high points, Madame Lagarde as well. But what is so fascinating is the news flow. And we need to become expert right now on one of those themes, which is the trade we've been talking about. And with us, Anil Guria, he is, of course, the fifth secretary general of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And in this non-cooperative world, it is the OECD. Buried on your website, your wonderful, informative website, is an important video which Jagdish Bhagwati of Columbia University, who has, has made a religion, Professor Bhagwati's made a religion about the value of growth in free trade. Is Bhagwati's world at risk? It is crucial that trade continues to drive growth. Typically, we had a rate of growth of trade which was double the rate of growth of the world's GDP. That means the, the, the trade was driving the growth. You yes. know, and that was today the rate of growth of trade is below the rate of growth of the world's GDP. It, it, it was flat for some time, it was very weak, and now it's still about 3%, whereas the rate of growth, the expected rate of growth of the world's economy is about 3.7. So uh, 
you know, trade is not helping. And of course, uh, the trade wars, the trade tensions, the tariffs, etc., clearly are not helping. You are one of the most important voices in the world on these matters. And it's not only that, but it's your economics and understanding of Mexico. Just as one part of the trade debate, how its threat is NAFTA when Richard Haas has a Canadian delegation up at CFR, uh, I believe it was yesterday, and we may have a bilateral Mexico-United States with Canada removed. I mean, these are tensions we've never witnessed. I was um, one of the negotiators of the original NAFTA. So it's your fault. And, <laughs> and uh, I have to say, it was uh, born as a trilateral agreement and it will be a, a trilateral agreement. We all benefit from having Canada, Mexico, and the United States in the mix. The three countries benefit, the region benefits. We're collectively more competitive, more productive. Mm -hmm. So it's a win-win-win proposition. Uh, Mr. Secretary, let me bring in my colleague in London, John Farrell. Good morning, John. Good morning to you, Tom. Good morning to you, Angle. Always great to get your insight. What do you do when one country doesn't play by the rules and that one country does tremendously well for a significant period of time by not playing by the rules and that one country is China. What do you do? What is happening now is that more and more China is becoming incorporated into all the big flows not only of uh, information and trade and finance but also in terms of the disciplines. Uh, for example, they were very active in the steel overcapacity global forum that we created in the G20 in order to deal with the substance of the steel overcapacity. One of the origins of the uh, very recent trade tensions, as you know, because that's what started, that's what sparked the whole thing. And China has been very active in there, giving information and, and you know, uh, trying to see what we're going to be doing about uh, dismantling some of the capacity. So it's a very good example of how they're moving in. I think they are uh, very convinced that um, it's, it's the only way in which uh, they are going to avoid further tensions like the ones we're seeing today. Well, the United States aren't convinced that's enough. Are you convinced? The problem with multilateralism is you can say anything about it. It's wonderful. It's great. But it's not fast. Uh, but it tends to stick better. The ownership is more diversified and it tends, it has more staying power than when you go unilateral. So this is why we should persevere with multilateralism, but we also have to yeah. get it to function better because sometimes it's just too slow and we persevere in this, you're just postponing and postponing the indecisions. But Angar, that's the problem. You have a political issue with the electorate. If you're the leader of a respective country, and in this case, the example is the United States, how do you convince the electorate that the multilateral approach of the last several decades that has yielded next to nothing to get China to open up more aggressively and much more quickly is going to start yielding results in the near future. How do you convince an electorate of that? These are two different uh, aspects of the same problem, but they're dealt with differently. They have two different channels. One is the pressure that is exercised by one party on the other with the tariffs, but the only 
way in which we're going to reduce capacity is precisely through the negotiation in the global forum. Otherwise, we're going to be seeing a revival of these tariff issues in the next 5, 10, 15 years. We have to deal with a substantive, with the uh, the underlying problem. Is there a permanence to a Trump lateral policy? Is there a permanence to my way or the highway as the president defines his globalism? The question is whether it is a negotiating strategy or whether it is a permanent way of looking at the, the world. Why? Because we built you know, the, this multilateral world over the last 60 years, and the U.S. have been absolutely crucial in this building mm-hmm. of this uh, world that we have today, including institutions like the OECD, which were born around the, you know, the, the recovery of Europe, uh, and then uh, have right. gone around these convergence uh, of policies. Mm-hmm. So we have to keep at it. We just have to keep proving multilateral is a better way. One final question. What's in the pixie dust in Paris? Is it Paris? Is that it? You have Catherine Mann wander from Brandeis University over to Paris, and now you have Laurence Boone. I was so excited to see that she would take over. Is What is the what is the gurry uh, pixie dust to get <laughs> these brilliant economists to go to Paris? Listen, uh, It has nothing to do with Paris, right? <laughs> the choice, well, first of all, the food is still good or so they say Uh, but then then, Tom uh, uh, the the most important thing is all these uh, crucial jobs are chosen exclusively by merit and in both cases these two ladies uh, have been fantastic of course Kathy left uh, to go to become a chief economist at Citibank uh, and now Laurence Moon uh, we stole her from AXA yeah. And now she's going to be dedicating herself to a little well, bit more of, uh, you know, of, of civil service again. They'll always be Paris. Thank you so much. And Algeria, greatly appreciated. Of course, Fifth Secretary General of the OECD. Thank you, Tom. SCD. Wonderful to have you with us. On you go to your... If you're just joining us, Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide from London and from New York at the Bloomberg Global Business Forum. And with us, Roger uh, Ferguson. Uh, Roger, I, I, I look at the Fed and the challenge forward. And if we go back to Chair Yellen and your introductions of Chair Yellen at the Economic Club of New York, it was about labor slack. The mystery here are rising wages. You deal with this every day at TIAA, teachers flat on their backs in terms of real wage compensation. Wages are rate, wages are rising, and my mail says, Tom, no, they're not. How does that dovetail in a gilded age? So one of the two or three things that we see, there are some pockets where there's clearly labor shortage and wages are clearly rising. Pockets. So one can think about truckers, for example, uh, as an area where wages are clearly rising. So you've got the scarce skill population. The second population you have are those where technology is changing and, let's say, disrupting. Uh, and increasing uh, productivity, and I think their wages should be rising maybe a little more quickly than they are, but they haven't really risen very much. And the third group is, I'd say, the unskilled, where you know the, the labor demand is not outstripping supply. And so what you're seeing in this economy is it has many different labor markets, and you put them all together, and you end up getting relatively slow wage growth overall, some pockets mm-hmm. hotter, some colder. Roger, it's Jonathan Farrow here in London. Fantastic to hear your insight on a day where we do get a Federal Reserve decision. Let's pick up on that, about how difficult it is to read the labor market and put it together with your assertion and other people's too that the Federal Reserve is starting to engineer a soft landing. Just how difficult will that be? And is there any historical comparison that you reflect on to say that it can be done? 
Um, one is optimistic that it can be done. Uh, the true reality is that it's rarely been done. Uh, and I think this time they're dealing with uh, a number of things that may make it uh, even more difficult. One, Tom's already alluded to, which is fiscal policy is also quite stimulative. That's not going to last forever, but we've had a major tax cut here last year that's still playing through. Uh, the second, I think, that they're dealing with is there are some geopolitical uncertainties, uh, though it yet has not yet become a major force in the U.S. economy. Uh, the rising trade tensions, some might call it uh, maybe looming trade war, may create some headwinds uh, in the near future. And the third, obviously, uh, is uh, the state of financial markets themselves. Um, uh, valuations relatively high across almost any asset class. Uh, and so I think, you know, this is going to be a very interesting, and I would have to say relatively challenging time to try to uh, engineer the soft landing against uh, all of that backdrop. Roger, it's interesting that whenever we hear from Fed Chair Jay Powell, he reflected, and we've heard this a couple of times, he reflects on previous financial crises and he reflects on previous economic downturns. And he says that over the last couple of decades, they haven't been caused by inflation. The most important aspect is to be handling the financial aspect a lot more effectively. Do you think that's where the focus is right now on the core of the FOMC, to, to really try and manage the potential for financial excesses to be just around the corner? I think the Fed is trying to manage both, right, because they recognize that they are also looking at an unemployment rate that is historically low, um, you know, measures that suggest uh, very, very little, if any, slack left in the labor markets. Um, they're looking at an inflation picture that is starting to move to uh, their 2% target. And so they've got to keep one eye firmly mm -hmm. planted on the real economy, because that is really the essence of their dual mandate. But you're right, at the same time, they have to ask questions about how much um, uh, debt has been built up in the system, and is there uh, mm. leverage that's somewhere. And so they have to be cautious about changing uh, the Fed funds rate and implications across the yield curve because of the possibility, not likelihood, but possibility of financial instability starting to emerge from uh, their gradual movements of interest rates. We welcome all of you worldwide on Bloomberg Surveillance from New York. Roger Ferguson uh, with us, the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, and now senior vice president in charge of America's failure in retirement. You are at TIAA. <laughs> it's your fault. And that would be ERISA of 1974. It <laughs> It has been a failure. What You live this every day at TIAA with teachers trying to salt it away, trying to get to retirement, and as a nation, we failed. What are we going to do to turn around the failure of the defined contribution system? So let me um, rephrase your question a little bit and describe what it is that we Please. do. Um, so we at TIAA, Teachers Insurance Annuity Association, have been around for 100 years. Uh, for that 100 years, we've been creating retirement security and more broadly financial security for literally millions of Americans. We think we've got a model that actually has been working very, very well. Um, and indeed, uh, our participants have retired safely uh, and have a high degree of confidence about But retirement. a huge body of America does not have a luxury of 403B and the rest. Exactly right. So that takes me to the next point, which is, okay, what can, I would say, America learn from the successes of TIAA over the last 100 years? And I think there are a number of lessons. First, you have to have a good defined uh, hybrid DBDC, uh, defined contribution, defined benefit plan. The way we do that is we have individuals saving 
uh, starting from their first day at work. But most importantly, they're saving towards getting guaranteed income uh, for life in the form of an annuity. So the way we have created financial security in retirement has been by having people save and then having the option okay. to annuitize. This is brilliant. It's the most important conversation I've had on retirement in two, three, four years. Roger Ferguson, no one in Washington is listening. How do we get right. a PhD from Harvard to explain to a bunch of politicians that define contribution, the variability, take care the the Lockean individualism of America? It's failed. How do we get back to the retirement plan? It's a hybrid with what our parents knew. Well, the actual, uh, there is some good news in Washington that there have been a number of bills that have been proposed uh, and are gradually working their way through. So there's actually a small group in Washington that's listening closely. And the reason that they're listening is the point that you're making, Tom, which is that um, retirement security may well be one of, if not the defining political economy issues of the 21st century. And so what I'm observing is retirement security or insecurity is rising, admittedly slowly, uh, on the legislative agenda through acts such as the uh, uh, RESA, R-E-S-A Act and others. So I see uh, the okay. emerging of a, of a real interest in this topic. How do we get back to the success of the British system? I mean, John Farrell's in London living fat and happy. He's, he's got his retirement slotted in when he was 25 years old in London. But can't we get best practices from other nations without being socialistic? Well, look, I think the reality is we're working hard to do that. And so society is looking for the models. We've recognize that a pure DC plan hasn't worked and so a bunch of us are saying and it's now being heard you need a hybrid plan but you have to recognize that it's going to take some time because we move I'll go with that dramatically from uh, defined benefit to buying contribution in the private right. sector and now trying to turn that ship is something that's going to take some time do you look at the moment we're in in the republic i know you've stayed out of politics I, I give you great credit for that but do you look at the moment that washington's in right now is a one-off or is there a permanence to this anger within parts of america look let's hope there's not a permanence to the anger uh, i think what we have to now understand is well what are the underlying causes that's driving this And I think one of the big underlying causes is the thing we just started to talk about a little bit, which is Mm -hmm. wage inequality. There's a sense that some folks are doing really well, particularly in the last 10 years of recovery, and many have been left behind. Uh, And so I think we do need to rally around the observation that we have the emergence of two unequal societies, and policy has got to figure out how to bring those back together again to overcome the resentment that some folks are feeling and recognize at the upper end that maybe you know they have benefited um, a lot more than maybe others think they deserve. Roger Ferguson, thank you so much for your time today. The former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System and, of course, with TIAA. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.